0: Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. What a fantastic evening we had.
1: Yeah, we have a great show with Lionel Friedberg yeah. who has led a pretty extraordinary life and he came on the show to talk about his newest book Forever in My Veins, How Film Led Me to the Mysterious World of the African Shaman. And wow, man,
0: heavy stuff. Yeah, he
1: he's <sighs> seriously stick around for the very end of the show cuz that story is like, yeah, you what need he, to listen to this thing. What and, its and its who he encounters uh, while trying to do an interview about airplanes is like,
0: what? <laughs> yeah, kind of a mind blower. Um, yeah. But no, a really fantastic time we had with Lionel. And I guess if I'm going to leave with something from this discussion, I mean, I'm really, I think I feel very blessed to do this show. I know Amber does too uh, because I know we get to take away cool stuff. We get to have really great conversations with really interesting people. And I always take something away. And this is one of those nights where I did take something away, but well, it's a positive thing and it's an inspiring thing. It's kind of a sad thing too, because after talking to Lionel, I'm like, man, I feel, I actually felt my gut kind of just like you're starting to get cabin fever. I can't say I haven't enjoyed myself just kind of, hanging around the house for the last year because we're at that point now uh this is the second of march when we're recording this show and we're pushing a year now of where we're at and i'm I'm not going to turn this into a big covid thing but i i need to get out and do something i think something has to happen here
1: spring's coming and vaccinations are going to help and i think and i
0: think the weather too the weather's starting to break here in michigan so we're starting to open the windows up and I feel myself being driven to go outside. I really want to get outside and start seeing nature again. And that's one of the things we kind of chatted about for a few minutes was just that, which is I think we talk a lot about on this show is that oneness we should have more of with nature and things like that and being more connected to the earth. I think it's a theme we have just indirectly and not really on purpose. It's something we hear a lot from the people we talk to. So, I'm leaving this conversation going, okay, man, I think it's finally starting to settle in now that things need to start changing. And maybe that's what we all need to start thinking about too, is things need to start changing and maybe just get our minds into that place. And because I think it's time to finally maybe get out from our our cocoons, I guess, and this, this thing we call lockdown, I guess. Uh, Yeah, that's what I'm leaving this thing with. I think there's going to—I need to start making some changes and start thinking about what's going to happen. Because, gosh darn it, I need a damn adventure in my life, and it's not going to happen sitting here in the house. I don't think.
1: I have adventures in the house.
0: I hear them every day.
1: The cat has adventures daily.
0: I know. There's a. I know. And Rollins is here. You got to
1: make the most of your situation.
0: Did he? He walked in here a second ago. He walked
1: in and walked out.
0: He walked in and walked out like a boss. Mister Rollins is doing great. We haven't had a Rollins update. Have we? Have we posted any Rollins pictures? No. We need to get some Rollins pictures he's up there. He's super cute. And anybody Serious that ma- If model. this is
1: like the first time you're listening to Ghostly Talk, Rollins is our cat. <laughs> yeah, he's, a, he's our cat.
0: Yeah, he. Uh, yeah, he's a cat model, too. He's a total cat model. He's, he's pretty pretty cute. hot. Pretty hot. He's a stud. But let you know, me tell you a little
1: bit about Lionel Friedberg. Let me give you his tell bio. Tell me all about him. Because he's an Emmy award winning. And lots of other rewards. Uh, uh, awards, too. Awards. Yeah, rewards. Reward, rewards. Reward. All oh, one. my God. I can't talk. But he's won them all, right? And he's born in South Africa. He began his career working in the first television station in Central Africa in northern Rhodesia, now Zambia, Mm -hmm. in 1961. He later photographed 18 feature motion pictures as director of photography in South Africa Mm -hmm. and then expanded his career to directing numerous dramatic TV episodes as well as writing photographing and directing scores of documentaries and non-fiction productions. After a long and successful career running his own company as a producer, writer, cinematographer, and director on a variety of productions in South Africa, he mm. moved to the U.S. in 1986. For the past 35 years, he has specialized in documentaries... Documentaries, documentaries. documentaries filming all over the world and winning numerous awards he has worked for the public broadcasting service which is pbs the national geographic society discovery channel arts and entertainment which is a and e uh, and others history channel he is the author all of three nonfiction yep. books, and he's a New York Times and Los Angeles Times bestselling author as well. He is a vegan environmentalist and supporter of numerous animal rights causes. His interests include ancient history, cosmology, aviation investigations into the nature of human consciousness, and studies of
0: the paranormal. He's Rollins interested is, in it all. Rollins is right there. He must have Rollins heard us talking Rollins is right there. He's excited. He's staring so, right up at you. Seriously,
1: enjoy this conversation uh, that we have with Lionel Friedberg. It's a good one. I think we're going to go all over the place. This is going to be fun. There's a lot of topics that we can cover and explore. And with us, we have Emmy award-winning documentary filmmaker Lionel Friedberg. And he's been to some pretty extraordinary places. He's met some amazing mm, and interesting people, yeah. including some controversial people such as Hitler's personal pilot. I kind of want to I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. And but what brings him to our show, of course, is his new book that he has put out. Forever, and yeah, forever, forever in my, in opinion, my veins, opinion, how just... film led me to the mysterious world of the African shaman, and I got really interested when I heard, and well, when I was reading about this and the African shaman thing, because back in when I was in college around 2004, my anthropology class read this book called In Sorcery Shadow, yeah, and I never returned it. I kept it. It was by an anthropologist <laughs> named Paul Stur- yeah, Stoller. Stole... No, no. You in college, Scott? You oh, can col- buy your books. Oh, I'm books. sorry.
0: I'm college. All right. So
1: anyway, this book. Kind of just stunned the whole class because it was about these African shamans, these these people doing sorcery and witchcraft in Africa. Mm-hmm. This one is the Sangha people in Niger. But it was wild. When you read this, you're like, this is an anthropologist. He's clear-minded. He's Uh not going to write something that's just there to entertain. He saw something going on and saw something in these people and then in turn became an apprentice of of these shamans. But uh, Lionel, who's with us, has had some incredible experiences with African shamanism, including going back to 1964 when I assume he was about 20. And he learns about his future. From an African shaman, and I think I'm pronouncing it right, a Nagana. And I want to hear all about this. Yeah. So welcome
0: to the show, Lionel. Did we destroy that? Is it Nagana, Lionel? Thanks,
2: guys. No, yeah. I'll, I, no, it's actually called a nganga. Nanga. Nanga. Okay. Yeah, but I'll forgive you for your mispronunciation. <laughs> 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 now, they, they, they call themselves Nangas in that part of the world. Are we talking about what is today the Republic of Zambia, in right in smack bang in the middle of Central Africa. Most of my experiences, however, took place in South Africa, where shamans there call themselves sangomas. And the sangoma, the meaning of sangoma is actually a Zulu word. And what it really means is the, the, the one who can see into the future, kind of like a, a soothsayer, a fortune teller, if you like. Okay. That's the meaning of the, of the word. Um, and that's what these people do. You know, they not only um, consult uh, are consulted by, by patients and clients and whatever else who come to ask them various questions about their health, but also whether they can make contact with their ancestral spirits for guidance, whether they can uh, give them uh, some kind of advice in terms of their career. Can they dispense some kind of medication for an illness they may have? So sangomas or ngangas in Central Africa wear many hats. They do many many things and the paradigm the medium by which they do this is through the bones now you've heard the term what do the bones say right mm-hmm, yeah yeah so what they do they cast bones now these bones are not just all regular bones that you're going to pick up from the supermarket these bones have <laughs> got to be very very specific and the bones in a normal sangoma set are derived from a number of wild animals including a lion a hyena a jackal uh there's a goat bone in there there is a hyena bone, there's a crocodile bone, and then there's a number of other bones. And then they can add, depending on their level of experience and how many years they've been practicing this, they can add their own bits and pieces, including you know charms and uh, pebbles and stones and other things, whatever speaks to them. Because the, the idea behind it is this. When they throw the bones, now throwing the bones means basically just tumbling a, a bag of bones onto a grass mat, mm-hmm. the way these bones fall are supposedly influenced by the ancestors of the person who has come for the consultation. It is that individual's ancestors who manipulate the way the bones fall. And then the Sangama or the Nanga consults their ancestor and their ancestors interpret the way the bones have fallen. So have bones fallen upright, upside down, left, right, you know, one on top of the other, etc., etc. So it's the way the bones speak through the ancestors that they do their work. And it is absolutely astonishing how accurate and how amazing this system really works. So you asked me about um, the uh, my, my, my experience back in 1964, and <clears throat> I, I will... Briefly go back and tell you how that all came about. Um, I was living in a country at that time, it was called Northern Rhodesia, part of the great British Empire. But the empire was falling to pieces. You know, it was the end of the empire. Uh-huh. And Britain was giving all its colonies away. And uh, so, this area called Northern Rhodesia, which sat right on the edge of the Belgian Congo, which had just been given its independence, uh, was going to become the Republic of Zambia. It, the, the name Zambia comes from the Zambezi River. And um, so when that happened, I was working in television, it was was the first television station in Central Africa. And after having spent three years there, uh, we all got fired, because the country became independent. A black government took over the country and also decided to nationalize the television station, which was totally understandable. We all understood that. And, you know, we felt no remorse or anger about that because, Mm. you know, they were going to give the jobs to local folks. And we totally understood that. However, my dilemma was I was a young guy and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life because I grew up in South Africa under the apartheid system. And my folks left the country just after I finished high school. And I followed them up to Northern Rhodesia and, you know, I got this job at this um, this amazing little television station. It was a tiny little place, but we put out so much live programming of all kinds of subject matter. It was incredible. A wonderful experience, and um, when we were all fired, you know, I thought, well, you know, what on earth am I going to do with my life? I didn't particularly want to go back to South Africa, even though it did have a pretty thriving film industry. I really wanted to come to North America and uh, live in Hollywood and make movies here, as mm-hmm. I did ever since I was saw my first Esther Williams Red Skelton movie when I was five <laughs> years old. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> Uh, And I had been making movies, by the way, since I was 11, you know, for my school and uh, sporting events and birthday parties for my buddies and that kind of thing. So anyway, to cut a long story short, so I got fired and we all had servants who worked for us and we had a, a terrific man who worked for us. I was living in a town not too far from the station. And uh, he and I were b- b- really good friends and, you know, I, w- I gave him a, um, a camera for a Christmas present one, one year and his dream was to open up his own wedding s- studio one day. So, you know, we had, a, uh, we had a great friendship between the two of us. And the the night after I got this pink slip, you know, I went to him and I said the next morning, I said, David, I got terrible news. He said, what's wrong? And I said, you know, I've been fired. Oh, no. He said, you know, why? Why? And I said, well, because my job's going to be given to someone like you. You know, it's, it's my job has now been Africanized. It's been Zambianized. Mm-hmm. And we were all expecting this. But when it happened, you know, you, I was in shock. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And he said, don't worry, I will find someone to help you. And a couple of days later, he and I, there we were trundling through the bush in my little secondhand VW Beetle <laughs> on a dirt road. To an African village. Way out in the middle of the boondocks. In the middle of nowhere. And at the very edge of that village. Was a, a, a small hut. And he said that's the place. Go park there. Which I did. And he knocked on the door. Of that little hut. And an ancient, ancient, ancient. Little tiny little old woman. Opened the door. She was a member of the Bemba ethnic group. Which David was also a member of the Bemba. That was his his tribe so to speak. And she spoke no English whatsoever, but thank God David did. And she said, come in, come in, come in. How she knew that we were coming, how David got this uh, meeting arranged, uh, to this day, I don't know. And, you know, that's the magic of Africa. Things happen there there's no explanation for a lot of things that happen. They just kind of come about, they happen, and you don't ask questions. Okay. So anyway, I, I went inside with David, and she said, sit down, and we sat down on this cold uh, concrete floor in this little room, and on this room, on the floor, the walls, the walls of this room were lots of little shelves of weird things, weird-smelling, weird-looking things, roots, bulbs, barks, berries, feathers, skins, I. I recognized none of it. Nevertheless, I sat down and David sat next to me and she brought out this little bag and she shook it and I could hear these bones clinking inside it. And then she said in BEMBA to David to tell me to say my name into the bag and then blow into it, which is what I did. And then she took the bag, turned it upside down and the bones all spilled out onto this mat, this grass mat. And she peered at it and she started to basically foretell my future one step at a time she went through she well you know I didn't understand what she was saying because and I don't even think she really knew what she was looking at because remember Zambia um, if you I'm sure you don't know this but Zambia is a landlocked country it's not even near the ocean but she said things like he has there's no problem Because he will cross the big water. That's how the word she used. She was merely seeing visions in the bones. And I don't even think she really understood what she was seeing. But she said he will cross the big water and he will go in that direction. And she points to the north, you know, and he will she he will go to a place where there are big lights and famous people and he will work there. Uh, So he must not worry, that will happen. But then she gave all sorts of warnings. She said, one day he must be very careful in his work, because one day he will nearly die from a great beast. I had no idea what she was talking about. (laughs) She said to him things like, in his work, one day he will go to a place where there is no color. There is just white. Everything in this world is white. He will go there. It is very, very, very far away. It's all white. There is no color there at all. I had no idea what she meant. And she went on and on and on. And one of the scariest things she said to me was um, uh, through David. She said to him, uh, she said, one day he will meet a man who was very, very close to the most evil man who has ever lived. And she clapped her hands in order to sort of emphasize the fact about this evil guy. And I will meet a man who knew this evil person. I, you know, none of this made sense to me at all. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I I made notes and I kind of remembered all of this stuff. And, you know, I took uh, all of these stories away with me, not knowing when or how or why they would come about. And sure enough, as my life unfolded, all of these events, plus a dozen others, all came true. I'll give you the example of the first one. I went back to South Africa because I had no option. I had to go back. And I joined the film industry there. And I worked in a studio in Johannesburg for about a year and a half. And then I managed to get a visa to emigrate to Canada. And so uh, those days, uh, this, we're talking about the year 1966 now. Um, and the way you, you, you traveled abroad those days, particularly if you have a lot of baggages, you, you didn't go by air, you went by sea, you know. Uh, It was before the days of mass air travel. And um, so I went by ship from Cape Town to Southampton in England. And then I was going to cross over the North Atlantic to Montreal. And the trip from Cape Town to Southampton was like a 14 day voyage. And every night I used to go up on the deck of the ship to look at the sky. I'm a sky watcher. Every every opportunity I get, I look at the sky always. Um, And you know, I became very aware of the fact that every night the sky was changing, the stars were changing. The, the 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 patterns of the sky was changing every night. Well, obviously it was because we were going north and the southern skies were slowly disappearing down beneath the southern horizon and the northern hemisphere stars were beginning to appear. And that was a strange sky to me. And you know, to be aware of that made me deeply aware of the fact that I was actually crossing the world I was going from north to south across the big water I suddenly realized and I thought oh my god that's what she meant she foresaw that fact that I was gonna do that here I am doing exactly what that ancient old lady had told me in her mud hut in Zambia I'm crossing the great water, the great water. from south yeah. to north yeah and um, and you know that was the first realization that what that little old woman and I wish I remember her name, I don't even know what her name was, uh, you know, that a lot of things that she may have, had told me may well come true. Now, <clears throat> I, was, I wasn't expecting any of them to materialize, but when they did, you know, it always hit, oh, hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh, my God. That's what that old woman had referred to. And these things happened again and again and again. It was just unbelievable. How did she know that? The bones spoke to her through her ancestors, due to the influence of mine. Go figure.
0: Now, is there some... When you speak of the bones, when you speak of the bones... Yeah, uh, and i mean, I may be asking too much on this, but I'm wondering, like, how do they read the bones themselves? I mean, I mean, what you're saying is that they're the, the bones arrange themselves in a manner as a result of the person who's being read their ancestors, right? Yeah, I'm wonder, right. I'm wondering what I mean if you're the person who observes this, like like this little old woman, right? I'm wonder, yes. I'm wondering what you know. She how we, how she how does she
2: read them? I guess. Well, that's part of the mystique the mystery you know mm-hmm. and 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 the wonder of this of this entire paradigm mm-hmm. no one really understands it but remember that in order to become an ordained nganga or sangoma it takes years and years and years where you sit at the feet of a master and you learn your craft you learn how to interpret the way bones fall if the crocodile bone for example crosses the hyena bone uh, in an oblique way, and the hyena bone is upside down, it means da-da-da-da. And if the okay. goat bone falls underneath the lion bone, then it means that, you know, there's a, there's going to be some kind of corruption by a more powerful figure. That's how they kind of learn how to interpret the way these things go. They can never give you specific names. They can never give you specific dates. But they can give you the, 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 the general... Uh, ambience of events that are going to take place
0: yeah and it's kind of a it's kind of a cool and primitive cryptography to a certain degree i mean if you if you look at it from that that point of view and that's kind yeah. of what I, that's kind of what i was thinking was that idea is there yeah. and as you as you said it takes years oh for years people and people yeah. to be able to understand mm-hmm. these things and that is trying to to me and i'm and i'm looking at it from a kind of a different you know different viewpoint Mm. It is to understand that 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 primitive cryptography is
2: what I would call it. It's very cool though. It's very interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, um um I don't want to uh, I don't want to uh, you know correct you, but primitive is is maybe not the right word to use because it's it's pretty darn sophisticated when you think about it. Okay. All right. Yeah. That 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 these guys, you know, sitting in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Of the bush the middle of the jungle or the middle of a desert and I've met so many Sangomas in my time you know and most of them don't even speak English they live they live in absolutely rural areas far away from any. how do they do this how do they learn these skills how do they learn to interpret this with such an incredible amount of accuracy and I have seen Sangomas perform exorcisms on people. I have seen the Sangomas tell someone who comes along and says, my, you know, my, 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 my husband, he ran away and took all the money. And where is he? Where can I find him? And the Sangoma will say, ah, you know, you have to cross three mountains and you have to go to that town. And then when you get to that town, there'll be a big road. There'll be a, there'll be a, a, brown building, you know, and that's where you'll find your husband. And sure enough, it, 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 that's how it happens. That's how it, it, it turns out that that person goes there and, you know, makes connection with her husband, who is yes. absconded with the, the, you know, the household savings. It's incredible. But, you know, Sangomas today don't only live in rural areas, uh, because Sangomas practice now, even in major metropolitan areas, and this applies throughout Africa. Uh, throughout the the continent, and um, and you go to a city like Johannesburg, and Johannesburg is a pretty modern city. I mean, it's got buildings sixty, seventy stories high, and uh-huh. you know, freeway, freeways and whatever else. And and even there, you will find sangomas, uh who will consult you. Sometimes they live they, they they have an office, or sometimes they live in, in an outskirts of the city, um, and people go and consult these guys, and they get prescribed medication. A lot of people will rather go to a sangoma than to a Western allopathic medical doctor for healing because they believe that the medication that these people prescribe are more potent and more powerful and more curative than what the Western medicine has to offer. And I've seen that happen time and time again because I've tried it myself.
1: Well, and I want to, I want to go explore that because as your film career takes off, I mean, you go all over the place and I just want to touch on this because you brought it up right now. And around 1995 you yeah. notice that your ankles are swollen, which then yeah. sends you to the doctor who says, hey, you have a kidney yes. I- kidney issue that is yes. potentially fatal. And yeah. so I'm really – I want to hear the story about how yeah. you started to deal with this, especially in okay. the prime of your career, and then going back to South Africa or Africa – And, you know, working with the shaman to explore your your health issues.
2: Exactly. Um, So I have a friend uh, who lives in Santa Barbara, which is about maybe 35 miles north of where I live here on the west coast of uh, California. And he is also a a white guy. And he's also from South Africa. But he's a general surgeon. But years and years ago, because of his training in medicine, uh, and he went to medical school in South Africa. And he lectured at Stanford. And then he went into private practice. But you know, he was always very intrigued by the healing methods used by methods used by sangomas in South Africa. He was intrigued by that, going back to South Africa regularly, to study about which plants do they choose, how do they grind the stuff, what do they uh, what plants do they choose, how do they grind the stuff, what do they uh, what what kind of leaves do they use for what kind of ailments. All that sort of stuff. He found that absolutely fascinating. And he said, I want to learn the system myself. So um, put that aside. This guy is up the road. um, And now we're going to talk about what you've just mentioned. And that is around about 1995. We're sitting watching TV here one night at home. And my wife looks down and she says, why are your ankles so swollen tonight? And I looked down at my ankles, and it was a hot Californian evening. I was wearing shorts. I didn't have. I had my sneakers on. And I said, oh, you're right. Um, they are swollen. I wonder what that's all about. So anyway, I went to see my uh, primary care physician uh, down in Beverly Hills. And uh, he looks at me, and he says, one of two things are going on with you. You either have a heart condition or you have a kidney condition. We better look into this very seriously because that's not good. Not at your age. You don't get edema, which is, you know, the swollen Uh, um, uh, ankles you don't get that at your age something's going on with you so he sent me to a nephrologist a kidney specialist and within a week i had a biopsy they took a chunk of one of my kidneys out they put it under a microscope and the guy says to me you have a chronic kidney condition we don't know what causes it we have no idea why you're having it but your immune system is attacking both of your kidneys and your kidneys are failing big time and they're failing fast and we've got to get you right. So I said, so what are we going to do? Yeah. And he said, uh, well, we have no method of curing this. The only way we can get this under control, and this is what they do with most autoimmune disorders, whether it's a skin disease or, or whatever it may be. Uh, I have the kidney condition. What we do, he says, is we suppress the immune system to prevent it from doing what it's doing. It's, 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 it's turning on you. It wants to harm you. It wants to kill you. So we're going to suppress it. And I said, how do you do that? And he said, well, I'm going to give you a a cocktail of some really potent stuff. And you're going to start taking this so that you suppress your immune system. It's going to make your immune system virtually non-existent. You're going to be uh, susceptible to colds and flu and anybody who coughs on the other side of the room. And if they have anything, uh, any illness or whatever, you'll get it because you won't have an immune system. But hopefully your immune system will stop turning on your kidneys. Well, I tried that. I tried that for like six months and I thought I was going to die. I never felt so terrible in my life. And eventually I went back to the guy and I said, you know what? I would rather die from my illness than from your cure because I can't take this stuff. This is just (laughs) too much, you know. And he said, well, then you're going to die. You'll be in dialysis before you know it or you'll be dead. One of the two. And I, I had no idea what to do. So I turned to this friend of mine, this general surgeon up the road in Santa Barbara. I, I called him up one day and I said, Dave, I need to talk to you. And he said, come on up. And I went up there and we went. We had lunch together. And he said to me, um, he said, yeah, that's, that's a serious situation. He said, you know what? I'm going back to South Africa in like three months time to, to spend another uh, month or six weeks, I think it was, with his teacher. The, he had a teacher in a place called a country called Swaziland. Swaziland is a landlocked country that sits between South Africa and Mozambique. It's a beautiful part of the world, mountainous and absolutely magnificent. And he had a teacher there who was teaching him about the herbs and the leaves and the and the roots and the berries and and also how to read bones because he was intrigued by all of this stuff. And he said, I'm going back to my teacher and um, why don't you come with me? Maybe my teacher, maybe he will have a cure for you. And I said, are you kidding me? You as a, as a Western-trained medical doctor, are you telling me I've got to go and see you? a witch doctor? And he said, yes. That's exactly what I'm <laughs> telling you. Whoa. And I said, okay, you're on. I'll, I'll go with you. And uh, I went with him. And I, um, we flew all the way from um, uh, New York to, to Johannesburg. Then we drove overland to Swaziland. And we checked into this little, this little compound, this little, this little village where this guy lived. He's teacher. And his teacher's name was, was well, he, his full name is complicated to say. So most people just refer to him by the initials PH. We met PH, the, the Sangoma. And the minute I shook his hand, he looked straight into my eyes and he said, you are not a well man. There is something seriously wrong with you. He just picked that up just by holding my hand. And he said, tonight I want you to come to my Ndumba. Ndumba is what is like a, 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 what, a name that they call their medicine hut, where they keep all their bones and their, their, their medications and their stuff, their Ndumba hut. He said, we'll, we'll, we'll do a bone reading tonight, see if we can find out what's going on with you. And I said, OK, fine, that's great. And, you know, um, I looked at Dave and Dave said, yeah, and Dave nodded. He said, yeah, you see this guy, he's, he, he'll be able to help you. So I went in there that night and he throws the bones and he says to me, oh, he says, you have a really, really serious condition. You need to see a really powerful Sangoma. I know someone who's more powerful and more skilled and more experienced than me. And I will arrange for you to meet him. And I want you to go and see that guy because I'm sure that he can heal you. You know, so I put my faith and my trust in this man. I had no, not, not, I, because I had nowhere else to turn to. I didn't have any option. And I said, okay, fine. That's, that's great. We'll do that. Two days later, we go into the little town nearby, where there's a trading store. You know, a single trading store where they sell everything from, you know, motor, motor motorcycle tires to cans of paraffin to tobacco to baked beans, everything. You know, <laughs> and and uh, we go there, and outside the store, it stands this little little guy. And once again, how did he get there, and why was he there? I have no idea, but he was there. And then Ph says to me, "This is." This is Mr. Mazia. And Mazia is the doctor who will help to cure you. Uh, and I in, shook his hand. He, he spoke no English. He spoke only Swazi. Swazi is a like a derivative of the Zulu language. By the way, there are 11 languages in that part of the world. Wow. And um, I shook his hand, and he was very meek and very mild, and he was a short little guy. And I thought, wow, well, you know, if you're telling me that this man's going to help me, I, I don't feel any great power or, you know, energy coming from this guy at all, but all right, we'll give it a try. And a couple of nights later, you know, we were in a Land Rover driving along these dirt roads for like three hours, Dave and I and an interpreter to a little village at the top of this huge mountain range. It was absolutely spectacular countryside and all of these round huts and one of the huts was bigger than every or than all the others, a big round hut. And I could hear drumming coming from inside this hut. And when we pulled up outside, two young guys, probably late teens or early 20s, met us. Dressed in Western dress, uh, costume, you know, clothes. And I, 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 I kind of think that they were probably this Mr. Mazia's sons. And they welcomed me and they said, yeah, we're expecting you. Come inside. And they show me into this big hut. And I go inside there and it's filled with women. And a lot of them, I think, a lot of them were, were Mazia's wives because polygamy is practiced in that part of the world. You, The more wives you have, the wealthier you, you, are, you are. And lots of kids, little babies on backs and, you know, even on, on breasts. But all of these women had l- l- drums and they were drumming away. It was just this thundering, amazing rhythmic sound all around you in stereo. It was incredible. And these guys said to me, you have to undress. Uh... And sit in the middle of the hut, and there was a little fire in a little, in uh, a little, uh, like a tin can, little um, tin, you know, container, an old oil drum or something, mm. in the middle of the hut. And he said to me, "You got to strip down to as much as you uh, to to as mm. the least amount of clothing that you can." And fortunately, I was wearing, you know, little uh, short underpants. Uh, <laughs> and my any sense of embarrassment, I just cast that to the wind. Right. You're in Africa; forget about it. Yep. N- you know, no one's going to notice. No, <laughs> you know, forget about all those values. Go out the window. You just do what you
0: told. I don't know why I just thought about that when you were talking about that. I yeah. thought about that. I'm like, when some if someone. Had, And that situation said, "Okay, undress." (laughs) I don't know why. And and, I mean, no, I mean, it's it's of course it's a little funny. But I thought, I mean, really, I thought about that and said, "Well, yeah, (laughs) no problem." Yeah, I mean, first off, you you want the help, but you are in a place where. That well, just, and yeah, it's
1: not it, not a time with cell phones and social media where you're worried that your picture is going to end up somewhere. You know, yeah. I mean,
0: it, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, if I'm at work and somebody says that, I'm going to see me like, dude, get out of here.
2: <laughs> it's not going to happen. But yeah, and, but there's another dimension to it, and that is that you know nudity and the human body is nothing to be embarrassed about. I yeah. mean, we have this weird uh, idea here that you know you don't you don't uh, you don't go around. Uh, nude and you don't uh, show your private parts in public. Well, in Spain they do and in Germany they do and here we don't and, we, you know, we still have these Victorian values and, you know, yeah. we're all human. We all, we, we're we born with that stuff and we keep denying it, you know, which is just an unhealthy situation, but that's another story. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I strip down to my underpants and I sit down uh, in the middle of this hut, I stretch out and I'm you know, sitting up straight against the pole with my feet as close to that fire as I can get because it was kind of chilly that night and this drumming sound all around me and babies crying and nothing is happening. And then like about half an hour later, these two guys that met us appear at the far end of the hut in a doorway that I hadn't noticed before. They suddenly appear. And they are dressed in their tribal regalia. And they looked absolutely magnificent. Straight out of a movie. They looked wow. absolutely amazing. With their uh, sort of grass skirts, uh, rattles tied around their ankles, each one holding a spear, lots of beads. And just arrived. And not saying anything. Just on either side of the door. Standing there like sentinels. So I kind of knew that something was going to happen. <clears throat> but I have no idea what And then, like, five minutes go by, and suddenly through this doorway comes this guy, Mazia, this meek, mild, tiny little man that I'd met outside the trading store, that he was a completely different individual. His eyes were fiery red. I thought, my God, the guy's stoned. What's What's he been on, you know? But it wasn't that at all. It's like he had taken on the essence of another being. He became someone completely different to who he normally was and he too was dressed in his tribal regalia covered in beads grass skirt rattles tied around his feet when i say rattles they basically are cocoons you know um that they tie around their ankles and go <laughs> as they walk um and he yelled Aiya! i got the fright of my life i thought my heart was gonna stop i had, i really i mean it's straight out of indiana jones falling into the snake, <laughs> the snake pit yeah. that's how it felt you know you know why me and what's going to happen anyway um the the drumming stops and the guy falls onto onto his hands and knees and he starts to walk like an animal towards me in a the the, the shape that he took was kind of like a hyena with a hunched back and snorting he was like <gasps> he had been come he had become a hyena And he walks up to me, staring at me, and he goes all the way to my feet, and he starts to smell my body. All the way up the left side of my body, I tell you, it was as scary as can be. I had no idea. I felt like, you know, he was smelling me to prepare me for the cooking pot. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And he he goes, he smells and smells and grunts, and eventually he gets to my left area where my left kidney is. And he starts to heave. He wants to get sick. He starts to go, you know, as though he wants to belch. The minute that happened, these two guys, these two young young guys with the spears, picked up a barrel, came running over to him with this barrel, and he vomited into this barrel, this gusty, yellowy, slimy stuff, into this barrel. And he smells my kidney again, and he gets sick again. he vomits into the barrel. They stand there. He starts smelling all the way up my side, up to my my neck, up to my head, my ears. Can you imagine this grunting and you know, the snorting in my ears, and then down the left, the right side of my body? And when he gets to the right side, to where the kidney is, he starts to heave again, and again he vomits this ghastly, slimy stuff into these into this barrel. And uh, when that was done, they, these two young guys take took the barrel out of the hut, and the guy stands up and he with his legs spread apart and he folds his arms and he looks down upon me and he starts uh, saying things to me in Swazi I don't know what he was saying it was all translated uh, to me afterwards but essentially what he had said to me was your grandfather was here tonight and your grandfather guided me to find out what is wrong with you and your grandfather guided me to the organs inside your body that are not good And I have taken the bad stuff out of them and I have spat them out. They are no longer in your body. This stuff will not make you sick anymore. Thanks to your grandfather. Because he showed me the way this is what he tells me. And then he says also, he says, now you have to be grateful to your grandfather. And every time you go for a walk or every time you leave your house, you must take a walking stick, a cane. And you must use that and you must think of your grandfather every time you go out of the house. you go for a walk or you go for a hike or whatever. And imagine that you're taking your grandfather for a walk and be grateful to him for his help. That's what he told me. And then he left the hut. And then the drumming started again. And then people just started disappearing. And, you know, w- we got up. I got dressed. We got back in the Land Rover. It was maybe 1 o'clock in the morning now. And we drove back to PH's um, uh, uh, huts. And I was stunned. I was trying to process what had happened. And Dave was also kind of speechless. But the guy, the interpreter, you know, told me what this man had said. And he said, you're going to be okay. He said, because your grandfather is the one who was behind the healing tonight. And he was the one influencing Mazia to do what he did to you. He did what we call a femba. And I said, what's femba? And he sort of thought and thought. And he said, ah, you would call it an exorcism. It exorcised the bad stuff out of your body. Now, so we get back to PH's place. And, you know, the first thing I did was I just crashed, slayed into my sleeping bag. And at about 10 o'clock the next morning, I woke up kind of feeling very dizzy and very strange. And PH, this is the man who's our host. Uh. He, he was there, and he saw me, and he was smiling from ear to ear. Now, there's no cell phone. There's no telegraph. There's no communication, right? But he smiles as though he knew exactly what had happened the night before. And he smiles at me, and he says, Ah, you're up. Okay. Come into my Nduumba. I have to talk to you. And, you know, I sort of crawl over to his Nduumba, and I said, I said, can I have some coffee first? He said, yeah, sure. I had a cup of coffee just to wake up, just to begin to feel human. And he said to me, he stared at me, and he said, Mazia expelled the bad influence, the bad negative energy from your body last night. And he said, and I know from what happened last night and how he knew, I still don't know to this day. He says, you now need a stick to pay homage to your grandfather because it was your grandfather who was behind you last night to help. And he said, and, you know, two weeks ago, I knew that I would need a walking stick for somebody. And he reaches into the shadows in his hut and he takes out this freshly carved walking stick that he carved because he knew someone would need it. I was the guy. How did he know that? How did all of these parts and pieces and incidents fall together the way they did? It was absolutely extraordinary.
0: Well, you said a few minutes ago that these things just kind of happened.
2: They do that. In Africa, they do. Yeah, you can't really just,
0: ex- like you can't really explain them, and I think that happens more than you know. I, I think that happens everywhere. Personally, I mean, I, I mean, I know in my own life, I've had those same weird things happen where everything just kind of falls into place without any type of intervention, so to say, right? right? It just yeah, and you yeah. know, and you may not be conscious of it mm. at the time. But then yeah. in retrospect, you look at it and go, oh, wow, that was crazy how that all came together. And it, it, it was for a good thing. It was all good
2: stuff that happened. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, Obviously. It, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was life-changing. It was life And, yeah, you know, yeah, so yeah. I came back from that trip and I went and I told my nephrologist this. Of course, he just laughed at me. He said, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you've been seeing witch doctors. He said, yeah, give me a break, you know. Uh, yeah and and you know he was the guy who said to me within 10 within 10 years you are either going to be on dialysis or you'll be dead well that was that was 30 years ago wow i'm, I'm still here you know wow um I was you gonna know, ask it you, how'd you how how it? Amazing.
0: I'm sorry to interrupt you but i was going to ask you i mean how did you feel i mean how did your body feel how did your mind feel after this whole thing
2: i was just very confused by the whole thing but as my condition stabilized i mean my kidneys my kidneys were and still are um, damaged because of the early parts of the illness, but they yeah. are stable now. They are basically stable. They're still functioning, not full, but not f- f- uh, to the full extent that they were capable of uh, originally. They're probably working at fifty percent of their level. But you know, I look, I'm still around. You're I'm still, still alive. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's and, funny.
0: You know. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead
2: no no i mean i and i and I, I credit you know those guys and then i saw other shamans later on other trips and subsequent visits that all endorsed this time and time and time again you know that it was my kidneys and that you know there's bad energy and you, you know you will survive it because your ancestors will help you your grandfather will be there for you you know they kept endorsing these are these are people who don't even know one another yeah
0: it's funny um as you're, you're talking about this, I was just thinking about what, you know, a couple of years ago with me, I was having some issues like, you know, physical issues. Yeah. Uh, I was, I would call them stress issues. Right.
2: Yeah. And
0: yep. I went through a lot of the same stuff. I was, you know, I love my doctor. He's a great person. I've been going to the man for many, many, many years,
2: right. um,
0: but all he can do. And he flat out told me, he's like, Hey, you mm. know what my job is here is to prescribe medicine to you that I think it's going to help your situation, help your quality of life. Right. right, right, right. Um, so I did see some. Uh, I I did seek out some alternative things. I I you know I was having. Well, I'll just tell you flat out. I was having like re- weird. um, I'd call them tremors on the in yeah my, on my right t- temple, and this would go on all day long. It was it was mm-hmm. craziness. It would drive me nuts. And mm-hmm. and it was probably. I'm pretty sure it was from stress. And then that happens, and it stresses you out even more. <laughs> so it's this nasty round yeah. robin you're in, right? Yeah. And yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. I ultimately, uh, you know. Went went to went to massage therapy, right? Had, and had acupuncture done, which I know is a it's a completely different part of the world we're talking about. But I had this mm. done, and and the and the people spoke to me and said, you know, flat out. <laughs> here's what they said. This is so funny. The one woman, she's like, "You don't smile a lot, do you?" <laughs> and I'm like, "What are you talking about?" She's like. You don't smile. You got a hard face. You front you you got mean face wow. you're, you're, Your your huh. your face is your face is mean and tight and that's <laughs> seriously this is what she said. She said your face <laughs> is tight and mean. And she's like that's what's causing your problems. Oh well. She's like, see, yeah. Uh-huh. She's like you need to lighten, you need to smile more. You need to loosen up and lighten you, you up see, a little bit. You right? you are buckling up all your tension. That's what's causing your own. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it all started to make sense then, right? Mm, so yeah. And that I, I had that massage work done. I had some acupuncture done. I had some really what I would I call now some very 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 good advice given to me. Um, yeah. And not two nights later, I remember me and Amber were here at go. We went out to dinner, and mm-hmm. I was sitting there, and I'm like, "Hey, you know, all them tremors are gone."
1: Yeah, I don't think wow. I've even heard you mention that in a long time. I forgot about those. They never
2: came back. Wow. They never wow. came. And back. so, so when was this? When did you have that uh, told to you? When was this?
0: <sighs> that would have been, I would say. Uh, June ish of 2019.
2: Oh. 2019. Okay, so
0: that's um, it's a while back, yeah. I yeah, hope. yeah. And I haven't had him, you know, and I'm not saying that I've been perfect about the advice I was given, <laughs> but, right. um, you know, and, but I have a doctor who was prescribing me, you know, I mean, mild narcotics to a certain right three. No. Um, yeah.
2: yeah. And,
0: and I'm, yeah. and I look back and, and I don't fault him for that. He's doing what he's trained to do.
2: Oh, of course uh, he is. Absolutely. Yes. Right. But
0: I think yes. the solution came from, you know, from some more natural things and yeah. what I would consider some very good advice, different, but the same, <laughs> you know, mm. that's what I thought mm. about when you were telling me this. So, and that's mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic. I mean, that's, that's mm. I, you know, 30 years later. That's, that's amazing to, yeah. uh, to hear that. And I mean, I would agree with you too, Lionel. That would be that would freak me out. Well and it just it, <laughs> they would scare that it would scare the disease out of me. I'd like I can't deal with this
1: it anymore. Goes, <laughs> it, it goes to show though that there's something else going oh, man, on so, in our so, in our world to, to to take on someone's energy like that in the way he did it, you know, almost like becoming well, becoming like mm. a cheetah or hyena or whatever and taking yeah. in that energy and getting rid of it. And that that's like – common thing that i find in a lot of energy healing types uh stuff where people will mm-hmm. bring something in they'll experience the pain maybe in their hand themselves and boom right. cast it aside and they get rid of it it's like you're the conduit in between yeah. these this this energy but it's yeah. there's something going on because i also don't think it's completely mental like oh i went yeah. to africa and this right. guy did this and so i'm just it's yeah. mind over matter there's there's something
2: uh, oh no, no going it's on much, it's it's much deeper yeah. and. Uh, 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 deeper may not be the word, uh, on a higher realm than that, there's no question about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, you know, I use an analogy in my book, the very last page of my book, uh, Forever in My Veins, I try and... And summarize, you know, I've had an amazing life I have to tell you Um, and I don't want to sound boastful or arrogant about it at all But I've really been very very lucky. I've done a lot of really neat stuff in my in my time as a filmmaker Particularly as a documentary filmmaker I've traveled all over the world and done movies on every subject you can think of I really have with NASA um, uh, Nature with National Geographic, you know, Discovery Channel, you name it (laughs) mysteries of the Bible UFOs you name it. I've done documentaries on all of the stuff. It's been an incredible life and what I've learned through all of this is that there's more than we know and there's more so much more around us and about us and about our world and about our universe that we do not know but it does exist and I kind of summarize that on the last page of my book and I say you know it doesn't matter whether you're a person or or a pony, or a petunia, we're all connected and I think we're all connected to some kind of cosmic grid. Think of the force in Star Wars. There is something like that that does exist and we're all connected to that field. Call it um, an, an energy grid, a communication grid, I don't know how to put names and titles and identifications to it, but whatever it is, we're all somehow connected in some weird way to this cosmic grid. We're all part of the same system, and that's how we can do things like we do, and that's how, you know, um, shamanism works, and that's how, you know, prophesizing works, and that's how so much of this weird stuff that goes on that most of Western uh, thought turns its back against because we just don't understand it, or we don't bother to try and understand it. You know, whether it's ghosts or afterlife or, 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 or um, you know, uh, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've done shows, by the way, I did a big two hour special called Beyond Death, which was all about um, near death experiences and people who had actually experienced the other side. And I I worked with 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 Princeton University and I worked with the Monroe Institute in Virginia with scientists This is not just ooga booga stuff. We're talking about real hard scientific examinations of this stuff. Yeah, and and uh, We know that there are many levels of consciousness beyond what we normally practice We are capable of going to very much higher realms than we normally do. I think in the dream state we're able to reach that point, but very few people are able to do that when they're fully conscious or awake, unless they have some kind of de- a degree of training. And in the West, we deny ourselves access to that because we don't, we pre- you know, if little Mary's sitting in the corner and says to her mother, Oh, Ma, look, there's granny sitting over there. And of course, granny's been dead for 10 years. Right. Yeah. What's, what's, what's Ma going to say? Ma's going to say, Oh, you're imagining it. Mm-hmm. You know, stop imagining it. She should not say that. What you should say is, "Oh, t- tell me what she's wearing. T- is she okay? Ask her if she's all right. Don't deny that because the very first thing we do is we deny it outright, and we've got to stop doing that stuff."
0: Well, we've been saying we've been saying this for years here on the show, and we, I mean, we say it all the time. And that's what mm. I think a lot of parents. I think that's what happens to a lot of children. Yes, when they're younger, is and I, and I won't fault the parents for this. Uh, when a child does have an experience like that, a parent—I mean, oh my God! There's, there's—I mean, let's. I that's probably a more extreme example, but oh no, the mm. boogeyman's in my closet! Oh my goodness! Mm, and yeah, yeah, I mean, I, naturally, what a parent's going to do is to let their child know, like, look, you're safe. You're in your home. You're fine. There's no such thing as the boogeyman. There's no such thing as ghosts. Yeah. And yeah.
2: that's only a parent, I think, trying to be a good parent.
1: Well, they want to protect their kid. And comfort
2: their child, yeah. right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And, you know, if we're talking about a, a boogeyman, then maybe that is a dark entity. Maybe that is a negative entity. And you do want to protect your child. Right. And you should protect your child. But yeah. if the child is saying that, you know, a, a lost friend or, a, or a, a lost member of the family is here or says... A man came into my room and he smiled and he, you know, wanted to talk to me. Don't dismiss it outright. You know, say to the child, well, next time, if that happens again, come to my room and tell me about that and I'll come back with you. And then you can ask the man what he wants from you, you know.
3: Yeah.
2: Give the child a sense of safety, a sense of well-being that the mother is there or the parent is there to protect the child. But don't deny it outright because that's by the time we've reached our teens, we've lost that capability because it's been eradicated from us already.
1: Yeah, there's so many uh, friends that I've had over the years who with their kids have said, oh, yeah, my, my child was looking at the uh, the corner the other day and said there was a man standing there. And I just shut that stuff down quick because, you know, the yeah. parents creeped out by it. Like, oh, you're just you're <laughs> watching a movie or you saw this on TV or or they yeah. do get that feeling like, oh, God, what if my kid does see something? I'm, right. I'm a little disturbed. I don't know how to process this. I had a right. friend recently whose uh, granddaughter said uh, yes. she started talking about the orb people.
2: That were around her.
1: Orb people. And they had no faces. She just said they came in different sizes. They kind of floated around Mm. her. At first, they sort of bugged her a bit, but now she's used to them. And so Mm. she was just real matter-of-fact. And it was so bizarre that it wasn't Mm. just a human, you know, anthropomorphic-type being. It was just an orb. And so then uh, her her, uh, son and daughter-in-law came home and... Uh, her granddaughter said, oh, mom, I'm telling them about my friends, the or people. And the parents just shut that down right away and actually took yeah. her grandchild like away and told her that those aren't real and you don't need to be telling people about them. So she yeah. came back into the room to tell grandma that she had to pack the bags and the or pe- people had to go, which is so sad when you think <laughs> about it. Just the, It is. It's, yeah. But yeah. It's, you know, it's like, what were you seeing that you could only describe them as just glowing balls of light?
2: i think it's just extraordinary i would love to meet that child you know I, when, when i did the beyond death show I, I i met uh i personally interviewed three young kids they were all under the age of seven had all had near-death experiences and they and they did not know each other but there was a, a pediatrician up in seattle who, were, who kept tabs on their, on, on their cases and also on other cases in the area of young children who had experienced NDEs. And he had a whole file of these uh, children, about a dozen of them. And um, he said to me, you can interview my three patients. And the and then he also sent me to, you know, go and talk to a couple of the other kids as well who were not his patients. But, but he kept a file on all of these people, knowing the parents knew about it, of course. And he said to all of these children, he said, you know, when you were asleep... What actually happened to you? They all described very, very similar things. And then he said to them, can you draw me a picture of what you saw? And they all drew very similar images of this tunnel with the light and at the end of this tunnel there was a white figure some of them called them angels some of the kids said oh that was jesus some of them says said oh that was god some of them said oh those were you know doctors um and they were calling me to the end of the tunnel of light and then they said to me it's time for you to go back now you know and then i woke up and i was i I saw mommy and daddy again you know Mm. so um, when you get experiences like that and descriptions like that from children who don't make this stuff up yeah. And when there's such similarity between them, you know, of course there are more realms and dimensions To, to, to what we normally accept, ac- accept in Western society You know, I mean here, uh, no one wants to talk about death No one wants to talk about dying No one wants to talk about crossing over It's just part of the process We all go through this and we've gone through it many times And probably will many times I think most, a lot of people,
0: especially in, in, in America, they don't really ever want to talk about death until they really are
2: facing it. Yes. And by then it's a bit late <laughs> because, because they're not prepared and it becomes a very, very difficult experience for them. Whereas if you kind of prepare yourself and you know that there is another level, another realm that you go to, and we've all been there. And we will, we all undergo this. You know, you can make that transition far more easily than if you're not prepared for it. And uh, you know, uh, like I, I attended on a Zoom thing the other day, uh, a very, very dear friend of mine. In fact, he was my mentor. Um, he taught me everything I know about cinematography, and he passed away from Parkinson's disease in England. And the, oh. he, there was the cremation was in London last Wednesday, and I watched this. And when I saw the coffin. In the chapel, you know, what I did was I kind of, I, I projected to him uh, a sense that, Ian, it's okay. You're going to be okay. You can make this transition. You've made it before. It'll be easy on you. Just take it easy and just let the transition happen. Do not be scared. Because, you know, a lot of people, when they die, they don't realize that. And they aren't aware of the fact that, they, that they're that dead, particularly those killed in battle or a car crash or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and and those are very unfortunate incidences of course but you know it death is part of life it's like uh, it's kind of like the same thing or that nudity thing you know it's all part of life Mm -hmm. and we keep denying these things and we've got to be a little more open-minded about all this stuff otherwise you know uh we stuck in a little box and there's so much more i think especially here in the united states
0: uh, and i think i've said this before we're very distracted We're a very distracted group of people. I mean, I know, Mm. especially over the last year, uh, we've been very distracted. (laughs) COVID. Um, Yeah, yeah, we've been very distracted. But even before that, though... um, We're people are just distracted in general. We have so many we have so many things that keep our minds off of what the things we're talking about right now, uh, right. the real stuff, the stuff that really does matter. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we have devices we can hold in our hands that can literally, I mean, do fifty to one hundred to two hundred different things, whatever yeah. you want. And a lot of that is to entertain you, right, and yeah. keep your mind yeah. entertained.
2: In other words, distract you. Distract
0: yep. you exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't say I'm, uh, you know, I'm i'm not guilty of that i mean i i have one too so does amber uh but i find myself personally uh getting irritated with that maybe because i'm a i'm a little older now and and Mm. i do see people spending a lot of time being distracted like that uh especially you know and not to go too far in the weeds but especially when you're in in the company of others i've see i've seen this and it really does kind of kind of just
2: perturbed me um, no, it's, when I'm, it's, it's it's awful and you've all you've, you've all seen that cartoon strip right all these people at a dinner party in a restaurant 10 people sitting at a table and they're all texting and they're texting each other yes exactly yeah I've seen that it's and it's hilarious um, but it
0: shows you how how scary yeah. reality yeah. is how yes. How, how, yes. how ridiculous truth really is because that's the kind right. of stuff that does happen it mm-hmm. does
2: happen yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and I think you're right when someone especially someone who spent the last fifteen to twenty years, living because that's been this is hand devices aside, we've been distracted for way longer than that. I think as, as, a, yeah. as a people. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Now you're now you have to deal with something very real. It comes out of nowhere, and maybe mm. yeah, you have a disease. You're not gonna you're not gonna uh, recover from, or maybe mm. something else is gonna happen to your in your life, and now life's gonna beat you down, and now you have to deal with things, right? Um, you're right. And yeah, you're right. I think some people may not be prepared for that, Lionel. Um,
2: You know, I think one of the one of the most serious things wrong with society generally today is we are so out of touch with nature. The, this great, I call it the great disconnect. We are so disconnected with the natural world, particularly those of us who live in, in big metropolitan cities. Yeah. Kids, kids who live in, 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 in big cities, what do they know about what goes on beyond that city? You know, I, I always say, you know, either I've got grandkids of my own and I say to the parents, tell them to put those damn tablets away. and, <laughs> and go, go take, go and get a canoe and go canoeing down the river. Go and camp in the forest uh, for for a night. Yeah. Go and let the kids smell the night air. Show them the stars. Let them smell the pine trees. Mm-hmm. Let them reconnect with nature because that's the essence of where we we all part of that. We're it's not so part true. of a, uh, you know of of this digital world. It's an artificial world. It's artificial. Well, You're so w- right.
1: And when you think about places on the planet where you could go to get away from it all, in 1991, you went to Antarctica. <laughs> Yeah, and
0: well, that was part of. Well, it was
1: for a PBS documentary you well, were working on, and of, yeah, for yeah. all the mm-hmm. things. And of course, even the lady who predicted a lot of the things happening in your life mentioned, like you yeah, were going to say yes, yeah, step yeah that like back. the vast yeah. white
2: place, or yeah, um, yeah, that's another, ex- yeah, that's another all example. white, exactly. yeah. Yeah. yeah, So yeah. you go yeah, there. I, it was Chris, it was actually Christmas Eve on in 1991, and um, we were on this research ship, and the captain there was a Norwegian crew. Uh, A bunch of American scientists and my crew and a whole bunch of other people on this uh, research ship. And at midnight uh, on Christmas Eve 1991, we were way down south. So there was no nighttime. The sun never set. Oh, uh, it, like midnight was kind of twilight time. Mm-hmm. And the captain said, Okay, we're we stopping the ship tonight. Are we going to party tonight? On, on the <laughs> <ship?"> <laughs> and, and that's what they did. But you know, I, I have always had a habit of keeping very, very copious notes of everything, particularly when I'm out on a shoot. I make sure that I write everything down. Uh, for reference purposes and um, so they you know the party was underway. I had a couple of scotches I you know, we we had our dinner and I decided to go up on deck I put on my uh, my jacket and I went up there. It wasn't all that cold um, And I was sitting on the deck and I, I looked around and I thought now How do I describe this in the narration when I get around to writing the narration for this show? What kind of a world is this mm-hmm. and I was struggling for for words And I sort of looked around and from horizon to horizon, all you could see was ice because the sea was covered in ice. Mm -hmm. So it was an ice pack. And then you couldn't even see where the horizon began because the the horizon and the ocean, the ice pack was like one. There was no there was no joint. It was like one single continuous luminous egg that you were inside. Mm -hmm. White. Everything was white. And other than the red hull of the ship, I thought, I'm in a completely white world. There's no color here. And I suddenly realized, oh, my God, 30 years ago, more, that woman described this to me. She saw this. Mm. Antarctica.
0: That's
1: so yeah.
2: wild. Now, Did, yeah. what, what's on, it Anna.
1: like? I mean, with when you're in Antarctica, like this vast emptiness, this the snow, the whiteness, the stillness, Was what was the energy like being there compared to the rest of the busy world?
2: Well, you know, uh, it's not as, as, as silent as one mm-hmm. thinks um, because around you, are there, the, the ice is cracking. Mm-hmm. You do, if, you're, if you're near any sort of cliff-like areas or land, where, which is all covered in snow and ice, there's glaciers carving off all the time. So every now and again, you hear this explosion of big chunks of ice crashing They're down wild. into the ocean. Uh, and then, of course, there are penguins there and Aww. there are birds there. And there's a lot of life there, and there's a lot of life under the oceans. Uh-huh. So it's, it's not a silent place at all. Okay. And, and, and I love the sound of you know, the, the wind and the sound of distant birds. But it's a very, very pure, pristine place, and it's a great place. It's a wonderful place to go and meditate. It's an incredible area because it's a clean – the, the energy down there is – I can only describe it as being clean. Yeah,
1: that makes sense. I that's that's the vibe I could get from like
2: like, just clean. I think my favorite my favorite weather,
0: honestly, is that brisk cold like that. No, because it does feel clean. It feels refreshing.
1: Sixty two. No, no.
0: I and I I I I love that. I love that climate. Just that Mm -hmm. nice because you can you breathe that in. And you feel it, and it, I mean, it is—it's refreshing to a certain degree. I think it's fantastic, so I—I I can identify with that.
1: Well, we live in Michigan; we're in the Detroit area, yes. so yeah, like, okay. we don't right. have much of a choice but right, to deal with yeah, that. Yeah, right now uh, <laughs> I'm all kind of over like the cold. I'm ready to bring in like you know that's <laughs> what I said like sixty two.
0: <laughs> yeah, sixty yeah, two. So nineteen eighty three. Yes, uh, we have to talk about. Yeah, this.
1: we do have to talk yeah, about I mean, this. We just, can't just let this mind one go.
0: Blowing because um, my mind's been mm. blown already, but. Um, You interviewed a man named Hans Barr. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So let me tell you that story. And again, this goes back to that old lady, you know. Yeah. Uh, She tells me way, way back, you know, you'll one day meet a man who knew the most evil man who ever lived. So, yeah, 1984, I'm doing a series of, of, of documentaries for television i'm in south africa i actually made the big move to l a in ninety uh, two years later mm-hmm. um, but but i've been i've been working and coming to the states ever since uh, nineteen sixty six in and out all the time mm-hmm. but my family and i we made the big transition in nineteen eighty five because we'd had enough of apartheid, so we got out of there but anyway nineteen eighty four I made a docu- a series of documentaries on the history of South African airways, which is one of the world's oldest airlines and it had a very colorful uh, uh, history, and one of its, you know, it, 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 it trailblazed air routes through the continent of Africa, when Africa was still called the Dark Continent, mm. you know, there were yeah. no airfields, n- no weather forecasting facilities, no refueling facilities, you know, routes were, were very primitive, um, you you could get lost very easily and never get found, you know, in jungles or in deserts or whatever, so you know, the the, the airline story is a fascinating one, and um, yeah. so in 1984, The airline, uh, 1934, the airline in its very, very early days decided to order three brand new, um, actually it turned out to be more than three, but the initial order was for three. Later on, I think it went up to a total of 11 airplanes, uh, commercial airliners from a company in Germany, uh, the Junkers company, J-U-N-K-E-R-S. And um, these were the latest state-of-the-art airliners at that time. And they each one held about like 14 passengers. That was massive Mm. compared to whatever was available before. Now, the big challenge was, how do you fly, you know, these 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 big aircraft all the way down Africa from Germany to Johannesburg and, you know, pick up fuel along the way and land safely and, you know, have rest stops? It was a two week operation. Massive planning had to go into this. And uh, I thought this would be a very, very colorful part of the documentary. And I said, you know, wouldn't it be great if. If there, if we had images, if there were photographs, so my researcher, bless her soul, she said, you know what? I found in a lab, uh, in in Frankfurt, there is a film that was shot by one of the pilots, and it's it's in color. It was shot in 1934. And it exists in a lab, and um, I'll make contact with them, and, which she did. And they said, yeah, we can get footage from that. And I thought, wow, that, that, that's amazing. We could put that in the movie. And then a couple of days later, she comes to me and she said, I found out more. Uh, our research team, and you know, we had a whole research team all over the place, we found that the pilot was still alive. He was like 89 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, my God, we've got to interview that man. Can you imagine that? We've got to interview this guy. So through the German foreign office, they facilitated uh, uh, um, us meeting this, uh, making contact with this guy who lived near Munich in Bavaria. And that, yes, he would agree to be interviewed about that delivery flight. So, I mean, I was excited as can be. Mm -hmm. And um, so came the time for us to go and do all this stuff So we end up in. Frankfurt we go to the lab we choose the, the footage that we want from the film and now it's time to go to Munich And you can you can get from Frankfurt to Munich in no time because you've got that wonderful Those autobahns in Germany are just something else, you know straight and no speed limit bang, you know You can get there in no time and we had two vehicles uh, Vans uh, with the crew. We had a public relations crew photographic crew my crew members of the of the aviation industry and this guy from the German government who facilitated the whole thing, who spoke wonderful English. And he said, you know, I'll be your interpreter because apparently this, this pilot uh, did not speak any English. Yeah. Uh, and uh, all I knew about him was his name was Hans Ba, B-A-U-R. And um, so we, we drive down, and the night before we get to this little village where he lived, we check into a hotel, and uh, we all had dinner. And at, after dinner, this guy, this, in, this interpreter, this guy from the, from the government, uh, order some wine and he and I sort of, uh, you know, s- 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 shot the breeze and we were talking and right about, you know, 11 o'clock at night, he, he says to me, how much do you know, do you really know about, uh, Hans Barr, you know, his background. And I said, well, you know, I don't know what else is there to know. All I'm interested in is what was that flight all about? What yeah. did he, how did they do that? And he said, OK, he said, he said, I, I want to ask you, I want you to promise me something. Then that is, will you please not discuss the war? I said, yeah, sure. Why? Because I, I, I could figure out immediately if he did that flight in the early 30s, he must have been a Luftwaffe pilot, you know, with the German Air Force. Yes. And I thought, yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll keep away from that. I won't talk about that. It's not part of what I'm here for anyway. But he wasn't quite satisfied. And we ordered another, another bottle of wine. And then eventually he sidles up to me even more closely and he says, but how much do you really know and want to know about the guy? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And I thought, well, here it comes, whatever it is. I said, what is there to know? He said to me, he was Adolf Hitler's personal pilot. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well. Wow. Wow you can imagine that after all these bottles of wine, I yeah. was as sober as I was
0: going <laughs> <he. laughs> to say that would sober anybody up right there on the spot. Immediately. I yeah.
2: Immediately. Yeah. I mean, immediately. I, was, <laughs> I thought to myself, how am I going to handle this? This, I've interviewed a lot of folks in my time, but this is, this is something else. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Anyway, um, comes the next day we arrive at his house and he lived in a very small house. It was, like a, a straight out of a picture book beautiful landscape little garden in the front with a little pathway and you know and a, a little white picket fence and a door mm. and his wife wel- welcomed us she spoke no english either and she was as sweet as can be and she invited us into the living room and uh, he wasn't around um and one of the other things that that man the the the, the interpreter from bond ma- member of the government told me was uh, I don't want you to discuss World War II for a number of reasons, but the main one is, is, is that uh, Kapitan Bauer, and that's how you refer to him, Kapitan Bauer, has a wall injury, and I don't want to open up any old wounds. So I said, okay, I'll stick, stay away from that. Mm. So anyway, we go inside the house, and there's no sign of the guy, but, you know, we set up the gear, and we set up the lights, and unravel the cables, and set up the boom mic, and whatever else, and, you know, we're waiting, and then I hear clunk, 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 coming down the staircase, and there he is. Uh, this short little guy with a walking stick and sort of hobbling. He had a bad leg. So I thought, oh, well, that's that's the war injury that Mm -hmm. that that man must have been referring to. And, you know, so the the man from the government introduced himself to this guy because he hadn't met him personally before either. Mm -hmm. And then he introduces him to me. And as I described it in the book, it was like, you know, you've heard the term six degrees of separation. This wasn't even one degree of separation because when I shook his hand, it was – it was almost like shaking the hand of adolf hitler i was one handshake away from from the from the greatest mass murderer of all time oh my goodness how, how many times had has hitler shaken this man's hand yeah and you know um i kind of try to put all of that out of my mind and i try to stay with the fact that this was a pilot and I was there for the world of aviation and I was there for historical reasons to find out about that flight Mm -hmm. but it was difficult because there were some photographs on the wall that were a little disturbing I didn't look at them too closely I didn't pay too much attention but anyway we did the interview and when it was done you know I said "Yeah, thank you very much you know Dankeschön and all that yeah and he gave us a really good interview by the way and he told me about that entire flight it was fantastic. And then uh, he said, you know, in German, you, you're finished? And I said, yeah, thank you, we are. And he said to his wife, bring the schnapps, bring the bring the booze. So she comes out, the wife, with silver trays laden with, you know, uh, like uh, lunch and uh, sandwiches and good German beer and all the good stuff. Yeah. And we all tuck into that. And uh, he and I clinked glasses together. And I, I only thought of him as a pilot, not as a member of the Nazi party or one of the inner ranks of the third reich i didn't I, I put that completely out of my mind difficult though it was because he was a sweetheart he yeah. was well-mannered and he was very polite and he was obviously a consummate professional pilot because you know he the way he explained things was excellent but like the guy had to know what was going on right during world war Two. Right. that's for sure of course and and then we clink glasses, and he, he he takes me over to one of the photographs, and he points out in the photograph there's a picture of him and Hitler in front of of a of a Junker, a Junkers Ju 52 aircraft, exactly the same kind of airplane that we've been talking about in the interview, and he says yeah in German he says to me you know that's a Ju 52 I said oh yeah we're very interesting that's amazing, he didn't say anything about the other guy in the <laughs> photograph. But then he looked at me and he said, do you want to know more? And I said, uh, yeah, beta, please. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought the guy from the government was going was gonna, to, you know, he just covered his hands, his, his eyes with his hands. And, you know, <laughs> no, here we mm. go. Anyway, so this, 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 this pilot asked me to go and sit down next to him on a couch. And he tells his wife to bring the photograph albums. And she brings six or seven leather-bound photograph albums. And he starts to open them. And it was like looking at the inner... Record uh, the the inner workings of the Third Reich. All of the main characters of the Third Reich are in these images.
0: How did you how did you keep it together,
2: Lionel? I had to you you have to do this. If you are a pro, you've got to learn how to do that. I mean, there's just no way that you can break that code of behavior. You you've got to remain within certain parameters. Mm-hmm. I, I, it was, would have been very easy to have been completely freaked out, but you, you don't do that. You, mm-hmm. you, you can't, it's not a professional way to behave. Ask Larry King. I mean, he's, you know, <laughs> uh, the guy's dead now, but you know, he's, uh, he's interviewed a ton of people and he didn't, uh, maybe not liked all of them. You, you've got to remain a, a, a keep to a, 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 mode of decorum. I agree. You've got to s- stay within yeah. those parents. You know, you're an interviewer. So oh. That's how, that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. And, and anyway, um, and he, it's page after page after page, and in a lot of the photographs, this guy appears with Hitler. He either in the background or sitting next to Hitler at a dinner, or wherever. And he tells me he shows me all these photographs, and he tells me that you know when he married his first wife, his first wedding. This is this woman that was his wife at the moment at the time was his third wife. When he married his first wife, Hitler gave him his wedding party in Hitler's personal apartment in Munich. <laughs> That's how close <laughs> these guys. Are. And, you know, I sat there and I absorbed all of this and I, I kind of, my head was swirling. Um, and at the end of the day, I said to the crew, okay, guys, you know, let's just, you know, bundle up the cables. It's, uh, we're done. And uh, we packed up and, uh, you know, we packed the vans and um, I said goodbye to him. And he was extremely polite. And, um, we got into our vans and he and his wife came out to say goodbye to us. And mm-hmm. we, we, drove away and I looked through the back window of the van and I, and the last sight I saw of the man, he was standing there with his wife standing next to him. They were waving to us like, like a very, very old couple waving goodbye to old friends. You know, yeah. that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's the image. And then we turned a corner and he was gone. Yeah. And it was at that moment that it suddenly hit me like a bullet between the eyes. Oh, my God. That's what that old lady had meant all those years and years and years ago in a mud hut in Africa. She foresaw this day. You will meet a man who was very, very close to the most evil man who ever lived. That's what I just did.
1: Oh, I'm speechless. It's just so awesome, Lionel, you are such a good storyteller. <laughs> like, I feel like I didn't even no, have to ask a lot of questions. No, it was just no, like sitting I, here listening, like, oh well, no, I mean, you know, I love it.
0: And the thing about uh-huh. that, you you mentioned this before, Lionel. and yeah. I, it's I love meeting people like yourself because i've I've often thought I've had a pretty charmed life. i've had I've had a lot of great adventures. i've I got a lot of great stories to tell people. Uh, yeah. And then I meet you, <laughs> uh, and um, well, no, I mean that what what that what that does for me is it
2: inspires me, right? Well, that's um, I'm am really glad to hear that, Scott. I mean that, that flatters me. But but you know, as I said to you earlier, you mm. know, I I really think myself as being very blessed, very lucky, very yeah, fortunate yeah. because I've I've had this incredible life. I've just had I've been exposed to all these amazing things, and I just wanted to share all of that with the world, and that's why I wrote the book. Because I I could not possibly keep all this to myself. I had to let it out. I had to let people know. And as I say, the the takeaway lesson for me after all of this, and there are tons of things that I describe in this book, uh, is for me that the world and the universe and the cosmos is a very, very amazing uh, place indeed. And there's Mm -hmm. still so much to know and to learn. And, you know, uh, as long as we keep finding out about one another and 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 offer respect to one another and respect to the world we live in and to each other and keep learning, mm-hmm. you know. The the adventure goes on. We're on a cosmic journey and that's what we're on and we have to recognize it that way.
0: But you gotta make that first step, I think. And that's what I mean, if anybody wants to take something away from this show. I, this is at least what you know I think a lot of people that first step is the hardest step. And yeah, to to go out and experience and understand and have
2: the insight that you have that I know I have too, I know. Um, you got to make that it's, step. it's a very there's a very simple way of doing it. It's just yeah. a matter of just opening up your mind, you know. It's just being um have a you know I I use a cinematic uh, uh, um a photographic term. Put on a wide lens. Mm-hmm. Get rid of that get rid mm-hmm. of that standard lens and put on the widest like lens that. you have. See it all as wide as you can And go outside the box And d- don't be gullible Don't swallow everything you hear Because yeah. there's a lot of rubbish out there A lot of crap out there I agree But with that. Just, just be open to consider everything and anything Whether it's ETs, extraterrestrials, ghosts You name it Be open to consider all of that Without rejecting it outright Consider it If you agree with it, you go with it If you don't, you reject it But be open to listen to it And to consider it
0: Forever in My Veins, How Film Led Me to the Mysterious World of the African Shaman. Um, wow. Thank you so much, Lionel, for taking some time to talk to us. It really, really, really means a lot to us to have you here. And can't thank you enough. Thank you.
2: Oh, thank you, guys. Both of you. It's been lovely talking to you. I do appreciate it. And thank you, both both of you, as Scott and Amber. Thanks for having me on your show. I, I, I do appreciate that.
3: Ghostly talk. <laughs> did oh. oh. 3.0. ever sound are in